for the first time in a long time, um, I felt like maybe I wasn't crazy because when you are constantly ill and tests come back with nothing, you begin to think, is this all in my head? And I knew that it wasn't. Doctors couldn't figure it out. Yeah. So I, I, you know, you start to question your own sanity a little bit. So I was happy to know that there was something valid wrong with me, but that also kind of started me on a whole new path because it's a life-changing diagnosis. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita, a health educator with a passion for making sure people understand the information that's shared with them. Our guest today is Ms. Christy Dickinson. Christy lives with a rare disease called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and she's also the founder of an application called Chronically Simple. Today, Christy's going to share more with us about how she got her diagnosis and her motivation for Chronically Simple. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Nikita. I'm so happy to be here. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, my name is Christy Dickinson. I am a rare disease patient and a mother of three and the founder of Chronically Simple. Wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit about your illness and what your path to diagnosis is like? Uh, yeah. So my illness, I live with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's a bit of a mouthful. EDS. It is a rare genetic connective tissue disorder. And the path to diagnosis was long for me. So it took me seven years, almost seven years to get diagnosed. When I reflect back, obviously it's genetic. I've lived with it my entire life. By the time I got to my diagnosis, it was like all of the puzzle pieces of things that I had had happen in my childhood and different surgeries and illnesses and instances that I had lived with throughout my teens and my 20s all kind of all of a sudden fit into a puzzle. So all the times that doctors had said to me, you know, we just don't see this in people your age. You have the worst luck. We don't understand why this is happening. All of that fit together when I got my diagnosis. But the journey to get there was challenging because, you know, I know I am not rare in that uh, struggle. Um, oftentimes when you're talking to patients that have less known conditions, the the path or the journey to diagnosis can take longer. Uh, for me, there were misdiagnoses. I think just it's challenging to find a diagnosis especially in my condition, because every patient presents differently and it can mimic um, conditions like lupus or MS. So I had to go through a lot of tests and, and diagnostic criteria to rule out before we could figure out what I had. It's interesting that you said, they said, oh, well, maybe you just have bad luck. Does that mean that at the beginning, maybe during your childhood, that they didn't think, oh, there's a deeper issue that we need to look for? They just figured, oh. No, it, you know, it's it's funny because your EDS is, as I said, it's a connective tissue disorder. And, and I didn't know much about that before my diagnosis. But basically, connective tissue is the glue that holds everything in your body together. So it can impact, you know, literally every part of your body, um, your joints, your organs, your skin, you get skin fragility. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, when you think about that, you've got this body that is supposed to do its work but the glue that keeps it together is faulty. 
So when I was a child, I was very pigeon-toed. So then they treated that. I wore braces to sleep, to turn my feet out. And then I had scoliosis. So we treated that. And then my joints would dislocate. So we would treat the each instant separately rather than looking at me as a whole person to think, you know, to your point, why is this happening in a seemingly healthy, I was active, I swam, I did synchronized swimming and competitive swimming. I certainly wasn't great, but I mean, like I did things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess like I never really thought of myself as healthy per se, because I would have all of these things kind of creep up and pop up, but they would be dealt with in by itself. Not No one ever looked at me and looked at my whole file. So I would go to the orthopedic surgeon for my my knees or my back. I would see the podiatrist for my feet. I would see whomever with the problem for my knees, but no one ever just took a look and thought, you know, maybe we should, we should investigate this a little bit further. And what was that turning point? How did somebody finally look at you as a whole and not several pieces and um, that was, so I muddled through and I had, I was active. I had, you know, after university, I moved out West with my, my husband And I had a massive GI. I'd always had stomach issues as well. And I had a really big surgery the year that we got married. And again, typically with an intussusception, you only see that in babies, not in a 24-year-old healthy woman. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the start of the big, it was a very big surgery and it was a long road to recovery. And then from there, more health situations started to creep up. With each pregnancy, my health deteriorated a little bit more. When you're pregnant, your joints loosen to get ready for the delivery for your baby. And I, my joints are all very loose to begin with. So loosening was not good for me. I learned that I have a genetic kidney disorder during my second pregnancy, um, medullary sponge kidneys. So your kidneys are formed and they're smooth. Um, Mine are shaped like a sponge. So there's divots in them and that makes them prone to infection and kidney stones. And my kidneys started to really give me a lot of problems when I was pregnant with my second child. And then those just continued through. I had a lot of antibiotic resistant infections that would land me in the hospital for weeks uh, at a time. And that was when I really thought we need to dig deeper because life is busy, right? Like I would get sick, And then I would be down for a little while. But as soon as I started to feel better, I'm a young mom, I've got young kids, my husband is a firefighter, so he worked shift work. So you just get into that routine of life. And nothing ever really took me out to the point where I was like, we need to call in someone and and really figure this out until after I'd had my third child. And I got really, really ill. I spent, you know, a couple weeks, a month, uh, for several months in the hospital. And that was life altering for me because I couldn't be there for my family. So at that point, the doctor still couldn't figure out what what was wrong with me. I was seeing a hematologist, a nephrologist, a cardiologist, um, all of the, I had like 10 different specialists that I was seeing to try and manage my care over three hospital jurisdictions. And I thought, you know, everyone's telling me that there's nothing I can do. And it's just the way that my body's made. We don't know what's wrong with you. And I thought the only thing that I can control is physical activity, like what I do, 
to keep my body moving and what I put into it. So my diet. So I reached out through my husband's employee assistance program to get an appointment with a nutritionist or a dietitian. And this is where I believe that, you know, someone up above was smiling down on me because my husband and I went to this appointment. It was in the evening. We sit down with this registered dietitian and we just start laying it all out. And I went there to try and get like a low sodium diet to keep my kidneys healthy and maybe an anti-inflammation type diet. And the woman that we met with, her day job was in genetics at a hospital with a doctor who specializes in Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So we laid it all out for her and she said, I think you need to come and see Dr. Lee. And that was the turning point. I got in very quickly. We did the genetic testing. I got my diagnosis and I thought from there, okay, and I think a lot of rare disease patients will feel this way. Um, You get your diagnosis and you expect that, okay, fantastic. Now I have a diagnosis. We're going to have a plan. That oftentimes doesn't happen because your diagnosis, there aren't doctors that know about it and we don't know how to treat you and everybody's different or there aren't access to treatments. There aren't access to to drugs. In my case, there isn't a treatment. There's no cure and it's just mitigation and management. So that was a little bit of a letdown, but I was happy because for the first time in a long time, um, I felt like maybe I wasn't crazy because when you are constantly ill and tests come back with nothing, you begin to think, is this all in my head? And I knew that it wasn't, doctors couldn't figure it out. Yeah. So I, I, you know, you start to question your own sanity a little bit. So I was happy to know that there was something valid wrong with me, but you know, that also kind of started me on a whole new path because it's a life-changing diagnosis. In my case, I have the hypermobility. So Ehlers-Danlos has a bunch of different subtypes and because it can impact so much of your body. And um, my genetic testing showed that I have a component of the vascular subtype. So it can be scary because I'm at risk for an aortic dissection. I'm at risk for uh, organs rupturing. So, you know, I was 38 years old. I had three kids. My youngest was only two. You know, living until my mid forties is not, was not an option for me. (laughs) Like I, I needed something better than that. So it, we changed up, we just changed up how we lived a little bit. And I didn't, prior to getting sick, I ran a search firm. I was in HR and and recruitment and I loved what I did. I never thought I would do anything else. I, if you had said to me 10 years ago that I'd be on the path that I'm on today, I would have said you're, so I'm grateful. I'm very grateful for the last six, five, six years, because I've been able to find a new passion and a new purpose. Tell us about that new passion and purpose. (laughs) So I really struggled when I was trying to get my diagnosis. As I mentioned, you know, I was juggling a lot of different specialists and over different hospital systems. So I'm in Ontario and my healthcare is divided between Toronto, Halton, where, which is the smaller town where I live and then Hamilton, which is another larger center. So vast area. It, it, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have to go where the specialists are, right? And there's not not a lot that work in, in or that have an interest in EDS. So I would go where they are and, and I'm grateful for the care team that I have. But I went into my my illness very naive about our healthcare system. 
So I assumed that with our health card, when you swiped it, they would just see everything about me. And, you know, I didn't know about EHRs and EMRs and different systems and all the silos. So I very, very quickly learned through trial and error that we, you know, I had to be my own advocate. If I wanted continuity of care, I needed to kind of project manage that. And that came from appointments having to stop because doctors didn't have the proper, you know, the MRI that they needed to make any treatment decisions. So I started asking for copies of everything. And I would get copies of my blood work, copies of my diagnostic imaging, copies of my referral notes, my hospital discharge summaries. Very, very quickly, my file folder became a binder. And we talked about the binders before we started recording. And anybody that (laughs) lives with chronic illness, yeah, they, you know, you guys know binders are, are very important. So I just thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. And at that time, because we were trying different treatment options, my cognitive abilities were impaired. And that was really scary for me because I'm used to, I'm very A-type personality. I'm used to being in charge of myself and, you know, I'm the matriarch of our family. I keep everybody in line. I don't forget things. I got to the point where like I would walk into a room and I can't recall why I'm in here. At work, I would have to write everything down. And that was probably one of the lowest points for me because I thought I've lost my faith in my body. I can't trust my body to do what it needs to do. And now I feel like I'm losing my mind. So I just thought, you know, there's got to be a better way than this binder because if I spill coffee on it, if I forget it at home, if one of my kids colors on it, it was a necessity for me to keep my health going. Yes. I needed that. I went searching for a better a better way than the binders. I thought there's got to be a digital solution. And I'm not technical. I went into this journey with no technical background. My family will tell you I was locked out of my Apple ID for like a solid three months because even Apple couldn't figure out how I'd broken it. So I went looking for a digital solution to try and keep my binders safe. And I could not find one that like my binder was divided by appointments, medications, test results, and expenses. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't want was five or six different apps. There are thousands of health and wellness apps out there, but my cognitive ability was impaired. I couldn't remember why I was walking into rooms. So I certainly couldn't remember to update five or six or seven different apps. So that became an itch that I just couldn't stop scratching. I thought, I know I'm not the only one because when I got sick, I reached out to all my friends and my network and anyone that I knew that had had any sort of healthcare journey or anyone that was a caregiver, you know, how do you guys do this? How do you keep it together? And everybody said binders. So I knew I was not the only person with this pain point. Right. (laughs) And that was, you know, it was like a little spark of me came back because I'd been an entrepreneur in my previous, like before I got sick, I'm not risk averse. I have faith in myself and my abilities. And some of that dwindled when I got sick. And when I had the idea for Chronically Simple, it just became something that I just couldn't let go of. So, you know, I did what any normal person would do. And I told my husband, I'm going to start a business about something I know nothing about. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I built it for the first year, pretty much from my bed, because I was not well. But What I've learned is if you are doing the right thing for the right reasons, then the right thing will happen. 
And that has been so true in every step of this journey. Every person that I've met, every patient advocate that I've ever talked with or caregiver advocate that I've ever had the opportunity to connect with, healthcare providers. You know, when you look to help people, people want to help you. Love that. So you built it from your bed. I guess you had someone help you with the tech. I sure did. Okay. I put on my, yeah, I put on my recruiter's hat and I found myself an absolute gem of a development partner who is still my partner today. And that is so vital. I have always tried to surround myself with good people who are smarter than I am and that I can learn from and that will you know, challenge me and push me. And my technical partner in this had, you know, I went to him with an idea and said, you know, what could this look like? I have this idea in my head. Can you help me build it? Well, yeah, and I have no money. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go out and get funding and, <laughs> and try and, you know, figure out how to build this. And, you know, we'll figure out how we're going to monetize it. But what I want to do is help people. So I never focused on growing a business, what I focused on was helping people. And the business part just followed. Wonderful. When you went out and you were looking for funders, was it well received? I imagine people jumped on that. Oh, oh, no, no. Like, (laughs) it was challenging. You know, we, my family and I watched a lot of Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. I'm like, okay, this is what mommy's gonna have to do. Like, but again, having that right tech partner, he helped me build a prototype. And then what I did was I shopped the prototype and the idea, what I'm most proud of about Chronically Simple is that we have literally every data point in that app has been built by a patient or a caregiver's journey, story or pain points. So, and that's how we continue to innovate and build it today. But it was really, I think anyone that has, I think when you have a good idea or a big idea, you have to be a little bit naive going into it. And I had no idea how complex our healthcare system was when I started this. So I thought, I'm going to connect to EHRs and EMRs because patients need access to their records. I didn't know that, you know, Canada had however many EMRs and EHRs. If I had known how hard this would be, you know, it's five years in and I'm still not integrated with them because it's like an impossible task. I will never give up on it and I work towards it every day, but that's like... That will be the pinnacle when I finally integrate with an EMR and our users can just press a button and see their healthcare records. That's when I will be like, ah, my work is done. That would be awesome. I bet they're probably not even integrated with each other. No, they're not. (laughs) Yeah, they're not. So you have to integrate with, and each province has different. Mm -hmm. Each province uses different. So, you know, in Ontario, we've got basically two big EHRs and probably 10 EMR vendors, but that's just Ontario. So like, if you want to go right across Canada or into the States, get it. Yeah. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. You know what? Every day, every day we take little tiny, small baby steps to try and work towards it. So I often tell my kids when they're feeling overwhelmed, you know, how do you eat that elephant? One bite at a time. Mm -hmm. So What are we doing with Chronically Simple? One bite at a time. We're just, we are trying to alleviate the burden for patients and caregivers to manage the the administrative stuff that comes with being sick Mm -hmm. and 
I think we've done a pretty good job so far, but we've got, you know, a long runway and that doesn't scare me. That makes me excited. I agree. That is very exciting. It would be nice if everything was connected. I even remember like, so I was a caregiver and it would be frustrating because you have to tell the same story over and over again. And it's like, why yeah. don't you, why don't you talk to each yeah. other? Even in the same hospital. Yes. Like what I'm so interested about is, and, and I've learned a ton about is the emotional journey of a caregiver versus the emotional journey of a patient. And I knew what I was dealing with. I didn't even begin to fathom what my husband was dealing with as my caregiver. Mm -hmm. So the worry, the burden, the stress, the anxiety that comes with watching a loved one go through a health scare or or living with an illness that you know is not going to go away. But then having to manage that. And when you're the only voice for that person, that must be so overwhelming. And then, you know, I, as a patient, hate repeating my story. Mm -hmm. It's traumatic sometimes to have to repeat it over and over and over again. And I have to imagine the same would be said for for a caregiver. Yes, for sure. And even just like you talk to the resident, sometimes they come first, you tell them the whole story, and then the doctor comes in, it's like, you have to say it all over again. (laughs) Yep. I thought you guys were going to talk to each other. No. Here we go. No. (laughs) No. And, you know, when you're complex... Or you say things that don't make sense or the like, oftentimes I'll say I've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, ankylosing spondylitis, medullary sponge kidney. And they're like, okay, hold on. Ehler, sorry, what's the first thing? I'm like, okay, sit back. I'll save you the Google time. And I respect that. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's what over rare disease day just passed. So I think the last stat that I read was there's over 6,400 different rare diseases, like classified Mm -hmm. as rare. So there's no way, like, I mean, they maybe got an hour on each condition in med school, maybe, like depending on your specialty. Mm -hmm. So in my rare disease world, patients and their caregivers oftentimes know more than the doctors. Mm -hmm. And depending on who your healthcare specialist is, they might not like that. So there's navigating that too, right? It's like all of the challenges on top of just trying to get care. Like, I just need treatment for this, or I just need someone to help me with this. (laughs) So how do you navigate that, for example? It it seems not too keen that you have to educate them on the issue. So I've become a lot more patient, I think, as I've lived with this for longer. So I used to get frustrated. Like, why aren't you listening to me? Why don't you hear what I'm like? I'm telling you this, and then you're telling me that can't be right. We don't see that, or you're not presenting that way. I know my body. And I didn't go to med school, but I am an expert in my care. I've been living in this body for 44 years. I know exactly what's going to happen. And if I tell you that this is going to happen, it's because it's already happened, you know, 15 times prior to me coming to you. So I'm now, I'm lucky in that I have found healthcare providers that I think I'm aligned with in terms of what do I want out of my care? What are my expectations? What are your expectations of me as a patient? How can I help make your job easier? What do you need from me? And if I feel like we're not aligned, then I ask for a new doctor because there are, now that I'm managed well, and I'm lucky in that I know a lot of people that there's one specialist that you can see that knows how to, you know, navigate your condition. And so you have to do whatever they want. And that's a horrible feeling. It's, you know, no one likes to feel that way in any relationship in their life. And this really is like, I view healthcare as a partnership. 
I went into it thinking, I'm lucky to have you as a doctor. And now I feel like, no, you'd be lucky to also have me as a patient because I'm educated. I'm low maintenance. I come into my appointments, you know, ready and with my questions. And I trust you because we've built up that trust. But I also like to be heard. And I think that that's really important. I think I advocate for patients to take an active role in managing their care. And I believe that the best care comes when you feel like a trusted member of your own care team. I love the way you said that. You went from thinking, I'm lucky to have you as a doctor to also you'd be lucky to have me as a patient. That's like really taking back your power. I'm not sure how many people think of it like that. Well, you know, losing your health, it is mentally very challenging. And I did a lot of work to work myself, like a lot of mental health work to get myself to to this point, to be accepting of my diagnosis, to be accepting of my new life and the things that I can do and the things that I can't do. I grieve what I thought I was going to live. You know, I don't know anybody. I've never spoken to a single soul that thinks when I grow up, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> like, you know, I grow up, I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to travel the world. Like we all have these big goals and dreams. Never once have I like, I'm going to grow up and I, I'm going to get like a chronic illness that knocks me down. <laughs> so I think for the patients and, and caregivers, but I can only speak, you know, from my experience, I took the time to grieve what I thought my life was going to be like. And then I also became very intentional about what I wanted out of this new, my new normal, which now that we're in the pandemic time, and there are words now that I, I hate saying, and new normal is one of them, because I don't like to think of where we're at today as our new normal. But, you know, you do have to find a new normal when you lose your health. And I think it's really attitude and outlook and your perception of who you are and what you can do is so vital, right? To, oh. to having a quality of life and whatever that looks like. But that's such an individual, it's such an individual thing. Really amazing. Like one question, well, I mean, you said so many fascinating things. <laughs> <laughs> so many directions. <laughs> but, but even I'm just, shocked because this is really, I'm going to be honest, like I'm not at my best in the evening. Like if yeah. we did this at 9am, I'd be hitting these out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> you said even just in, you know, doing the work to get there because it's, I can only imagine how frustrating that is. You know, you want to perform, you want to be at all your kids stuff, but I imagine there are days when you, you just cannot be. Yeah. And so doing the work to, to get there. I will say it's a work in progress. Like, you know, it's easy for me to sit here with you because today's a good day. I still, I feel a tremendous amount of mom guilt and I carry that and it doesn't serve me, but sometimes I sit in that. And I think it's funny because I, I, every year I choose a word that I'm going to focus on. And my team makes so much fun of me because like, I've got like inspirational quotes everywhere and you know, you're feeling down. I, I got something for you. I'll pull, I'll pull something out of my hat, but I really do intentionally try and find the good in every day. I choose every single day to be happy and to be grateful for whatever is going to come because it is hard for me to get out of bed. It is physically difficult for me. And it takes me probably 20 minutes to get my legs moving and, and my back moving. And so I'm very intentional with my thoughts and I do still struggle with that guilt. So this year, my word was grace. I'm trying to give myself grace because I beat the crap out of myself 
during 2020, Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden I was at home. I'm working, you know, 12 hours a day trying to grow this business during a time that the medically vulnerable is one of the most impacted groups of this pandemic. That's the community that Chronically Simple serves. I've got three kids that I'm trying to homeschool. That's not going well. So, you know, I've got all these balls in the air and I'm doing none of them well. And I went from like managing pretty well to like really not good. I don't know how you're supposed to get through like a global pandemic, but I feel like I might've gotten like a D. So I expected nothing new in 2021. I knew nothing was going to change, but I just wanted to give myself a little bit of grace. And perfect word. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a work in progress, right? Like I've done mindfulness intensives. I've done therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. And if I turned my computer around and showed you all of the self-help books in my (laughs) library, like I try and have an active, like a growth mindset. So I'm always trying to like, you know, make myself a little bit better, find, find a silver lining, but it is a work in progress. And what gets me, like what guts me is when I can't be there for my family or when I feel like I can't, like I'm letting someone down because I don't like to be a burden. I hate that word, Mm -hmm. but it's, I think, you know, if I'm being honest and I'm a pretty honest and forthright person, like with me, what you see is what you get. I would be lying if I said at times I didn't feel like I was a burden to my family. And that's a horrible feeling, you know, work in progress over here. (laughs) And so when you say that you worry about being a burden, I'm sure that's something we all worry about. And our family members would probably be horrified to know that we feel that way. How then do you advocate, do you try mainly to advocate for yourself and not call on the help of others to stand in for you? How do you? Oh, I'm horrible at asking for help. (laughs) I am not good at asking for help. And it's funny because, so again, therapy, and I'm very open about like, I will take and ingest any type of tools or tactics. If there's a better way for me to do something, I'm all in for that. And so uh, my husband and I were chatting with therapist like mid last year, and we've been married for 20 years. So, you know, you go for tune-ups, we got to keep things steady. And last year wasn't great. So we're talking and he's a fixer, like he's a firefighter. He's used to going in and solving problems and solving them quickly. And I don't like asking for help. So if I go to him with something, now he says, are you looking for comfort or a solution? And if I say comfort, his approach for me, even in in my healthcare situations, is different than if I say I'm looking for a solution, then he gets into his mode, his caregiver mode. And I'll tell you, I have to be really, really, really sick to put up my hand and say, I really need you to advocate to get me this or to like, I need you to take me here because I'm, I like to feel it's that control thing again, right? It's that control thing. And that'll get you every time. And I, when I'm talking to other patients, I'm like, you need a support system. Do as I say, not as I do. Right. (laughs) And so I'll ask you then for examples, you know, maybe one example of where you had to advocate for yourself to get the outcome you needed. And then one example of where someone had to step in and advocate for you because you So now I didn't prepare these before we sat down, but I have two really good examples for you. So I don't know how I'm 
how I'm so on it tonight. This is good. I had a situation in 2010, my second son. So I've got two boys and a girl. So our middle child was not even a year yet. And I was in the hospital. I went in because my gallbladder wasn't working. And I had an ERCP scope and they nicked my pancreas, which gave me pancreatitis. So I was incredibly sick, like one of the sickest I've been. And I'd been in the hospital for almost a month because we couldn't get my pancreatic levels down to a manageable amount. Just as they were getting back to normal, I said, okay, now what are we going to do about the gallbladder? Because that's actually why I came. (laughs) Like it's not working. It's making me sick. I can't eat. I've lost like 15 pounds. And also it's my son's birthday. So I've been in the hospital from, I was in a little bit over Christmas and then I got the pancreatitis like mid-January and now it's mid-February and my little boy is going to turn one on February 23rd. Like I have to be home for that. So the general surgeon's like, well, you know, I'll discharge you and we'll put you on a list to get your gallbladder fixed. And I was like, no, I'm not going anywhere until you take this out. This should have been taken out in January. I was, I, I can't come back here. Like I do not want to be back in this hospital. So I'm not leaving until you take it out. And we were in a full stalemate for three days. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. No, it did not go well. Like, and when you tell a surgeon, I'm not leaving until you take this out, typically 99% of the time the patient loses in that. Like, they're like, no, you've got to go. (laughs) Now, I was lucky in that my family doctor advocated for me. And I ended up having to find a different surgeon because the surgeon that I was in the stalemate with, we got to the point where I'm like, oh, you're not operating on me because you'll probably take out my gallbladder and my heart. So, (laughs) (laughs) but after the three-day stalemate, when I was just about to discharge myself and, and find something, go to a different hospital, I got the care that I needed and I had the surgery and I made it home for my son's first birthday. So that is a time that, and I don't even know where that came from, because that was really early in my journey. I didn't even have my diagnosis yet. I just knew if I get discharged and have to come back, it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing what a, I was motivated. Yeah. And then the time that I had to, again, around my child's birthday. So the time that I, I needed to call in my ringer, my girlfriend, Brenda, that helped me. She's a consultant for Chronically Simple. She's the caregiver. She's probably one of the fiercest advocates that I know. She's like a wonder woman. Her son, McLean, has cerebral palsy and he's incredibly medically complex. And he's also one of my oldest son's best friends. So I know her very well. And she's one of the few friends, few people outside of my immediate family that I will call on to bring me to a hospital if I need to sit next to me. So I was in, I had had, when my kidneys act up, things go sideways very quickly for me. It was December and my daughter's birthday is December 7th. So this is like the beginning of December and I'm sick. I'm on my second round of antibiotics. It's not getting better. And typically that means hospitalization, IV antibiotics, and I'm out for a week. But again, I've got a baby that needs their mom for their birthday. Birthdays are big in my house and we had priorities, right? I had my kid's Christmas concert. So... We're in the hospital and they're like, we're going to have to admit you. And I'm, I'm like sobbing because I'm sick. When I get that sick, I find it really hard to advocate for myself because you're just done, right? Like, yeah, I had no gas in the tank. And then she was like, wait, why don't you just have home care? Put in the IV and the nurse can come and give her the IV antibiotics once a day. Oh, have I never thought of that? So it took some convincing 
But the doctor was like, okay, you have, we will try this. And here's the window. And if anything goes sideways in this window, you have to come back. You have to promise that you'll come back. I made it home for for Sadie's birthday. I was at the kids Christmas concert with the IV in my arm, just bandaged up. You know, the home care came and I avoided a hospitalization that would have been seven to 10 days. So, you know, if I hadn't had her come with me and asked her to advocate for me, I would, that outcome would have been different. And my care wouldn't have been impacted in any way, probably, but my quality of life, my mental health, my kids, my family. So that's an awesome example. I think you're brave, Christy. And I think other people might think so too, even just in the examples you gave, like speaking up with the surgeon, or you said, if you don't find alignment with the doctor, you're willing to move. So we're in Canada here and it takes long just to get off the list to see a specialist. Oh, yeah. Sometimes. So how do you respond to people who say, but I've been waiting six, seven months? I like, I know this is not a match, but like I need somebody. Like, how do you bridge that? I really want to have an alignment with if I turn this guy down, it's going to be another like who knows how long. You're 100 percent right. And I've sat on those lists like I'm still on that list. I've been waiting to get. Like I've got a bleeding ulcer right now. I've been waiting to have that taken care of since November. Still no appointment. So I think it comes down to honestly how bad the misalignment is because like I have some core values related to my care that I will not waver on. So I'm not going to start any treatment without having, you know, full understanding of why are we doing it? What are the side effects? What are the long-term impacts? Because I think that for me, Some of the, like I'm on immunosuppressant drugs and some of them have very scary side effects and I'm young and I plan on living a long time. I have to take care of the organs that work well. I can't mess up my liver. So I always look at cost benefit and I've had doctors that have been like, listen, this is the only treatment for you. And I struggle with that because I do my research. And if it's the only treatment for me, then, and it's going to kill my liver, well, then can we have a conversation about the impact? Like, do we start the treatment now or do we wait a year? And if you're not open to having those conversations so that I can feel comfortable about what I'm going to put into my body or what treatment plan we're going to agree on, then I would rather wait six months if I can. Like, obviously, if you're in an emergency situation, you need a doctor to help you. Yeah. And those, that's not the type of, you know, I'm talking about more long-term specialists building up that care team that's going to care for you, hopefully over the long term. You know, my sister-in-law had a Chiari malformation and needed brain surgery. You're not going to interview the brain surgeons. You're going to take that referral and get that surgery (laughs) because that is like uber important. But if you have the opportunity, I think I tell people, no one knows your body better than you. Don't be bullied into trying something that you're not comfortable with. And if something makes you uncomfortable, then speak up. Because people seem to forget that healthcare is a business. Those doctors, like we're their customers. And so when I shifted my thinking from, I am so lucky that you gave me an appointment and that I get to see you to, oh, okay, this is a transaction. I'm going to come see you and you're going to provide me care. And that's your job. It's your job to take care of me. So I think when you shift that thinking a little bit, hopefully it gives the patients back a bit more power or feeling of power. I refuse to have anyone on my care team that doesn't respect me as an equal part of our care team. I love that. 
What were some key challenges you found in navigating the system and how did you overcome them? So for me, the biggest challenge, other than like access, actual access to care, the biggest challenge for me was the breakdown of communication. And you talked on it a little bit in your role as a caregiver. So the repeatedly having to tell your story and, you know, the older we get, the longer that history is. So it's like, pull up a chair. Like, how long do you have? (laughs) So the times that our system has impacted my ability to receive care you know, having to sit on a list for an MRI, drive to Pembroke to get the MRI, because that's me finding the, like, I don't want to wait three years to have it done in the UHN. I'm going to drive to a tiny little town five hours each way to, because I can have it done sooner. And then the MRI not making it to the neurologist that I've waited six months to see post MRI. I wait three hours in the waiting room My sister takes a day off because she accompanies me to my Toronto appointments. I've taken a day off. You get in and "Mm, sorry, we don't have your MRI. You'll have to rebook. There's absolutely no reason for that. Mm -hmm. There's just none. So that is the communication breakdown and the silos that our healthcare system is built on. The fact that oftentimes patients aren't viewed as a holistic person. Doctors have specialties that they focus on, but that specialty might be purposeful if you are treating a localized incident. Like if I break my leg, I need an orthopedic surgeon that can fix it. But when you're dealing with a chronic illness that impacts your whole body, I need a healthcare provider that's going to look at me as a whole person, not just a nephrologist who only looks at my kidneys and only prescribes drugs for those kidneys without thinking about how they impact the rest of my body, if that makes sense. So those are the biggest challenges that that I really struggle with. I can't change the number of specialists that Canada has. I can't change the way that our healthcare system is built. I am so grateful that to live here and to have access to care in the way that we do. You know, our friends across the border have to navigate insurance, complex insurance uh, systems. And I don't want to sound ungrateful because I'm, I'm not. I recognize that if I lived in another country, my condition would have bankrupted my family multiple times over. But I do think you can be grateful for the care that you receive and also still be an advocate for change to improve and make it more efficient. In Chronically Simple, can you talk us through it for the viewers so they can hear how wonderful it is? Can you attach your, like if you had your MRI results, can you attach it in there so it's all in one place? Yes. So as I mentioned, we are still a work in progress, but I'm very proud for what's in market today. So basically the way that the app is built is you enter in either as a patient or a caregiver because we are respectful of your journey and it is different. And we have features. So appointment management system, symptom tracking, medical expenses management and tracking. So those MRIs, all of my binders, we have the ability to scan and upload and then you file them in your medical documents section or you can snap a photo with your phone and attach it to an appointment, which is attached to your healthcare specialist. So when you're going six months between, if I don't see my rheumatologist for six months, I can go to my previous appointment, pull up my post-appointment notes. This is what we talked about. Okay, now here's all the symptoms I've had over the last six months. Here's my blood work. Here's my test results. So I'm going into that appointment to make the most efficient use of my time that I have with that specialist. That's where I see the biggest benefit to be. I think knowledge is power. 
And the more in control you feel about all of your medical information and your personal health information, the better you equipped you are to navigate our system the way that it is built today. So Chronically Simple is really a centralized hub. It's secure. It's cloud-based. It's encrypted like our banking would be. Like I'm a user. All of my personal health information is in there. So patients' rights to data is something that I'm very passionate about. We don't sell your data. We don't share your data. It's your personal health information. What you do with it is up to you. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that makes us different and is hopefully something that builds trust with our community. We're constantly evolving. We're integrated with our wearables now. So I can pull my activity from my Apple Watch or my cardiac information from my Apple Watch, plop that into my symptom tracker. And because I'm a nerd and I want to see if I take 20,000 steps, does that impact my pain? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. (laughs) So to be able to reflect on that, because again, that could impact treatment decisions, right? I don't want my rheumatologist to think the reason that I'm having all these high pain days is because my treatment isn't working. It's actually because I'm doing too much. Right. I love that. I, I, when I logged in, I noticed it's, it had that like syncing with health apps. And I was like, Ooh, that's cool. I can put my Fitbit here. (laughs) Yes, you sure can. And we're, that's a newer feature for us. So we only, we started with integration with, so your activity, like your steps, your cardiac information, your blood glucose monitoring and your BMI. And that's something that we're constantly working on because you know, and again, I'm learning, right? So non-technical person in Apple Health or Google Fit, your Fitbit, your Garmin, there are literally thousands of data points that they're collecting. But of those data points, what is meaningful and impactful to you? Probably 10, maybe five or 10. So those are the ones that we're starting with. And then as our communities say, like, we really need this, then we'll, then we pull that in. And what has the response been like? I suppose from both patient patient users and doctors, what are they saying? So, you know, it's funny and I'm so glad you asked about the doctors because my own bias, I went into this thinking there's no way healthcare providers are going to, are going to adopt this or see any value in this because they're set in their ways and, you know, they don't want to do any extra clicks in their EMRs. So I've been pleasantly surprised and I'm I'm very excited because we've seen phenomenal adoption with the healthcare providers that we've introduced it to. They see the true value in having engaged patients and having patients, you know, tracking and monitoring their symptoms and coming to appointments prepared. Whenever you're again a business, right? Like we don't often think about our health as a business, but what's the return on investment for a doctor to have an engaged patient, well, they come prepared. So you get to spend less time with them. You don't have to spend an hour with me. So then you can see more patients. So none of them have said that to me in in that many words. And I, I certainly don't want to paint healthcare providers yeah. as, as transactional because all of the ones that I'm lucky enough to know and work with are the opposite of that. They are not in healthcare because it's a business. They're in healthcare because it's a calling and because they are called to to heal. So I think they see the value in uh, having a person taking that active role and feeling more in control. The patient and caregiver response has been fantastic. We're growing rapidly right now, which is nice. And then it's always evolving, right? We're constantly having different focus groups with our users to find out what do you like, what do you not like? You know, it, it always comes out patients and caregivers both in every meeting. 
We wish that we could have access to our healthcare records. We wish that your app wasn't so manual. I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> I think it's awesome. When I logged in, it looked like you can add your provider, but if you mm -hmm. add your provider, can they access it on the other side? So that's something that we are exploring because okay. you have the op chronically simple is shareable because again, if I can't advocate for myself, I need my husband to step mm -hmm. in. He needs to have my medication list, know who my healthcare providers are. He needs that information quickly, right? So I invite him to have access and I, I can grant him access to what I want him to see. Mm -hmm. um, for the healthcare providers, we could do the same. You could invite your healthcare provider. They would download the app and then they would have access to what you see. Now that I'm seeing the adoption and the interest from the healthcare providers, we're exploring potentially a portal that, so if your GP thought or your specialist or whomever, you know, I see true value in this. I'd love to have my patients on it. It's not realistic for them to have a track and manage it. They don't want all the different apps, right? So we're looking at building a portal and then the patient would grant them access and they would decide what they see because again, that autonomy and that dignity, that control. That's very cool, Christy. How do you feel? This was born out of a frustration you had and now other people are benefiting. When we hit a milestone, my problem is also, so my strength is also my weakness. And I recognize that I'm self-aware enough to know. So part of what I think, what keeps me going, because it's a tough slog, like starting a business from nothing. I knew the problem and I knew enough people to help me get it off the ground, but I'm constantly learning and that's tiring, right? But I love what keeps me going is when I'll get user feedback or, or patients or caregivers will send me a note like, this has made such a difference. Or like, you really helped me with this. My mom loves this. Now she's able to keep everything together. Or I'm feeling less stressed caring for my son because I know it's all in one place. And if anything would ever happen to me, I know that someone could pick up his care easily. So that is what drives me. I want to, I don't know how long I have, right? I know no one does, but I'm probably more aware. Like when you have a change in your health, and someone tells you, you know, you're at risk for this or this could happen. I'm very intentional with how I spend my time and what I want to do with whatever time I have left. Hopefully it's 40 years. If it's only five years, I just want to make a change. I just want to make a difference. And it doesn't have to be huge. If it can alleviate a little bit of stress or a little bit of anxiety in someone's day so that they can then focus on their family or on getting outside or on feeling a little bit better then that's all I want to do. The rest is gravy. So how do I feel? I feel incredibly grateful, wildly shocked to be here. Like it's such a fun adventure to be on. And, you know, it's a silver lining to something that for a little while really rocked my world. And my husband said a couple months ago, you know, I think you're where you're meant to be. And imagine if nothing had changed. If you never got sick, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today. And I love it. I really do. I love what I'm doing. So I just, I feel happy. Sounds incredibly rewarding. And tired. <laughs> I'm also tired. Yeah. <laughs> As we wind down, <laughs> yeah. I have uh, two final questions for you. So one, do you have any favorite patient resources or tips that you like to refer people to? That's a good question. So I love, and I think it's different by diagnosis or by therapeutic area. 
but I have a very big soft spot in my heart for advocacy groups. I know a lot of them are run on volunteers and they fight for funding. And I think that they provide such, I won't name or call out anyone specific, but I do think there we are very lucky to have some really, really good patient support groups that can make such a massive difference in people's lives uh, throughout their different, you know, journey to diagnosis and then navigating life after a diagnosis. I think probably those would be my go-to depending on what your diagnosis is. Obviously, rare disease, the Canadian Organization for Rare Diseases, CORD, is massive in my world. They're kind of the overarching umbrella. And then you've got all these different amazing advocacy groups run by just warrior patients and, and caregivers that like approach each day with a fierceness and a drive that I couldn't even, like I'm in awe of. So I love that. Anything that's run by patients or by caregivers, I have a very soft spot in my heart for. There is value too in checking those out for yourself. Sometimes you think, I, I don't need anything, but just being around people who know what you're going through can be so helpful. You need one. I believe community is so important. And I think that it can be really lonely. And like, I've got amazing, amazing friends and family that support me in literally every crazy idea I have and every hospitalization or health scare that I have, they're there. But there's something different and I have a different connection with other EDS patients Mm -hmm. that just have an understanding that I can, you know, if I send a text, I'm like, I am just done. I'm done today. They're like, I get it. And they do because they live it. And so there's just that different level of, I think, I don't know, it's a connection. And I think community is so important. If you can find just one person that is walking on the same path as you, it makes it less lonely. I agree. And then finally, Christy, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about Chronically Simple? Thank you. So you can find me, our website is chronicallysimple.com. We are on all the socials. I've got a like my team that just keeps me going. So I've got a phenomenal social media manager that I work with on Instagram and Facebook. Our Instagram handle is I'm simply Christy D on Instagram. And I my profile is open. I think it's so important that people understand that I'm I'm a patient too mm-hmm. and I have an authentic view of what I'm going through. I'm not trying to sell you something. If it works for you, fantastic. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. I would only ever want people to use Chronically Simple if it made, if it added value to their life. And don't forget, you have a podcast too. <gasps> yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, we have a new podcast okay. because I like to try new things. So Simply Unbreakable is our new podcast. And we launched that mid-February and that is just a whole lot of fun. I love the name. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, we've got a bit of a theme going on here. I have a tattoo that I kind of live by and it's, I may bend, but I will not break. Mm -hmm. And Simply Unbreakable kind of came from that, you know, chronically simple and life will test you no matter what. Everyone has life experiences that test you and you might bend, but you won't break. Awesome. Thank you, Christy. Any closing thoughts? Just thank you so much for for taking the time and for wanting to talk to me. I've enjoyed this conversation so much and I hope that we get to chat again soon. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you at the Good Health Cafe. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed the episode and I'm so grateful to Christy for sharing with us so much of her story so transparently. Did you know that the Good Health Cafe also has a blog? Subscribe to our mailing list on thegoodhealthcafe.com to get updates when new blogs or episodes are posted. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram too. See you in the cafe next time. Bye.